Welcome to Manifesto Podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host Phil Clyde, author of the National Book Award-winning short story collection, Redeployment. Our crack producers, Adam Kamara and Alex Brooklyn of Racket Media, and me, the knocker-off of tall hats, Jake Siegel. May you continue to be a person. We've got a special dispatch today. Phil Cly is off on assignment, trying to perfect the union. I sat down for an extended interview with Michael Lind, whose new book, The New Class War, is the subject of most of our conversation, though there is a portion at the end where we get to talk about a poem by W.H. Auden. Lind is also somebody who's been a significant influence on my own thinking over the past decade or so. He's a very hard character to describe, not only because he's both written political analysis for the nation and for the national interest and for American affairs and for Harper's, but also because he's the author of uh, an epic poem in addition to his many tomes of political writing. Lind is somebody who's hopped back and forth between left and right over the years, not because he's unprincipled, but because he's ahead of his time, frankly. And what we're living through now is something of a Lindian moment. He's been predicting the realignment that defines our current political era for close to 20 years. In practical terms, what Lind is calling for is a regeneration of workers' power, institutional workers' power in the form of labor unions and collective bargaining for the working class. Now, he has a definition of the working class that is the subject of some dispute and debate. And if I had more time in the interview, that's something I would have pressed him on more, exactly what the working class is in 2020 when we no longer have a a real manufacturing base in America and it's an increasingly service sector-oriented economy. I also would have liked to ask Lind more about how the internet plays into all of this, though I know he's something of a skeptic when it comes to the idea that we are now in an information economy. All that for another time, though. Good news is that we sat down for this interview in the offices of Tablet Magazine, in the Flower District of Midtown Manhattan, on the eighth floor, in the Aleph of the Aleph. And that's where Lind is going to be appearing more often now that he's got a regular column and tablet where I'm sure he'll be addressing these questions in the future. Look out for it. One final note. We launched the Patreon about a month ago, and it's off to a great start. Thank you to everybody who has contributed so far, and to anybody else who's looking to contribute, you can find the link in our Twitter bio, or just put Manifesto, a podcast, into the search bar on Patreon. You can find more details about what we're offering to different levels of patrons on the Patreon page, and we'll be keeping that updated as we unveil new special features, so look out for it. Without further ado, Michael Lind. Thomas Mann was asked uh, what he was, and there were two words for a writer in German. There was uh, Dichter, which is like bard, it's very pompous, and the other one was Schriftsteller, Scribbler, so he said Scribbler. So uh, I scribble in different genres. That's good, and I'm looking behind you in the very heart of Tablet's office in New York City at a poster of Isaac Bashev's singer. Uh, below which is the appellation, the noted author, 
comma raconteur. So <laughs> we're very much in the, the spirit of the scribblers here at Tablet and uh, uh, happy to have you here in the offices to talk. An opening question for you. Is America an empire? And will the American empire survive into the next century? No, I don't think America is an empire in the classic sense of being a kind of arbitrary collection of territories and uh, ethnicities under a single city-state or a single dynasty. It's a giant nation-state uh, where 80 to 85 percent of the people of all races have uh, American English as their native language, uh, even first-generation uh, immigrants. So it's quite culturally homogeneous, it's racially diverse, uh, it's the third most populous country in the world. Uh, so it's more like it, it's more like China, a gigantic state with a clearly dominant uh, national culture, than it is, say, like India, which is much more diverse linguistically mm. and culturally. And having said that, it's a great power. It has client states, it has protectorates, it has allies, powerful and weak. Uh, there's an American bloc, including NATO, including the U.S. alliances in the Middle East and in East Asia. Uh, so if you want to call the, the bloc or the alliance system an empire, you know, that's okay with me. Who are the Han of the American nations? That Well, we talk about Americans in terms of genetics. I'm sorry, the Han being the yeah, ruling right. class uh, dynasty in China. Well, well, the Han are the ethnic majority right. in China, uh, in the same way that the uh, Persians are the ethnic majority in Iran. Uh, you know, the the uh, in the case of the United States, I think there is a cultural majority that includes uh, most African Americans, most white Americans. Uh, as a Southerner, uh, white Southerner, I've, by culture, not by descent, uh, I've always found I have much more in common culturally and linguistically with uh, African-Americans of Southern descent than I do with, you know, white northern Northerners. Right. Uh, so, not, you know, not only is there a common national culture, there are common regional cultures. And simply focusing on genetic descent, I think, obscures this. Uh, there's a profound difference between, you know, an African immigrant who just arrived from Kenya or Nigeria uh, and an African-American you know, who uh, essentially shares the same culture, the same evangelical Protestant religion, you know, uh, folkways and so on with uh, white Southerners. Yeah, and I think that opens up well into a sort of broader uh, discussion of the thesis of the book. So there is a an identifiable Americanness that persists uh, even as we approach, you know, a third of a billion population and uh, culture does seem to be fairly fractious and divided at the moment, there's still an identifiable Americanness. The, the principal division you're tracing in this book, which has cultural symptoms and manifestations, uh, is a class division. And the title of the book, The New Class War, refers to a conflict between what you call the overclass and uh, the second group, which is the majority group in America, the working class. So broadly, what are the contours and what is the historical precedent of this class war? Well, I reject the common idea that there's a overwhelmingly large middle class 
and then a small group of the poor and a small group of the rich. I, I don't think that is quite right. Uh, I also reject the uh, uh, common mistake, to my mind, of describing class simply in terms of income, because your income can go up and down throughout your life. Your, your class tends to be the, uh, the social stratum into which you were born, is, is that of your parents. Uh, so in the new class war, I follow broadly uh, the definition of class by James Burnham, who was a leading Trotskyist in the 1930s, who uh, broke with communism and became an, one of the founders of uh, William F. Buckley Jr.'s National Review, an early uh, uh, conservative. In his book, The Managerial Revolution, in 1940, he argued that uh, the Marxists were wrong, that uh, capitalism was indeed withering away, defined as capitalism in the sense of small owner operators. You know, Ebenezer Scrooge, the classic bourgeoisie. The petit bourgeois. Petit bourgeois, exactly. But it wasn't going to be replaced by the rule of the proletariat. It would be replaced by the rule of the managers, a term which he defined very broadly to include not only corporate executives in the private sector, but also civil servants, uh, nonprofit executives. And uh, in the passage of the managerial revolution, that is seldom commented upon, he argued the military, the uniform military would become more and more important as one of the, as what we call the deep state now. It's one of the most important aspects of the managerial elite. Uh, and he, he argued that in different ways, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union and Franklin Roosevelt's America showed these managers coming to power. Uh, and he predicted that uh, the managers and, and the professionals would lord it over uh, the proles, who would be the majority of society, the working class. I argue in the new class war that did not actually happen after World War II uh, because of a cross-class compromise uh, in the U.S. and in Churchill's Britain and Adenauer's Germany and de Gaulle's France between the managerial elite and the working class. This is what you call democratic pluralism, which refers to this structure of countervailing powers whereby... No one group, uh, the managerial elite, can lord over uh, another group. Yes, th th that's exactly right. Uh, what I call the new class war is the second class war in the West. The first class war was between industrial workers and, to some degree, family farmers and uh, the industrial capitalists in the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, and under the pressures, not so much of rebellion from below, that was important, but of wartime mobilization in which the Western democracies had to broker some kind of peace treaty uh, between the workers and the factory owners in particular in order to mobilize the economy for war against the Germans twice uh, and, and uh, uh, other enemies. Uh, you, you got, after 1945, this system of uh, countervailing power, to use John Kenneth Galbraith's uh, term for it, uh, in which uh, trade unions balance the power of industrial corporations, uh, in which uh, uh, religious institutions, churches and synagogues, are much more powerful in the 1950s and 60s than they are now, sort of policed Hollywood and, and the mass media and censored them, uh, you know, to, to make them compatible with the values of their constituents. Right. And uh, you had uh, the parties in the West were federations of uh, local political machines. Uh, they were not simply labels. Uh, and I argue that the atrophy of these 
three institutions in particular of the unions of the churches and synagogues and of the uh, local political uh, parties uh, has led to a centralization of uh, uh, power in uh, an increasingly homogeneous uh, caste almost of managers and professionals who dominate the commanding heights of the economy and the culture and the state. Yeah, and these are the. This is the overclass uh, that you refer. Let me let me give an attempt at a, a very potted summary of the argument as I understand it, and then, um, maybe that'll uh, you know allow you to point out where the emphasis is, uh, the emphasis should be. So, essentially, what Burnham apprehends is that this uh, drawing on his Trotskyite and, and Marxist education is that there's been this profound transformation in political economy. And so whereas the subject of the traditional Marxist analysis had been, uh, you know, capitalists uh, as the owners of capital, uh, the bourgeois and then the industrial proletariat, a transformation has occurred in political economy itself where the, the bourgeois, the sort of small business owners, um, have largely been replaced by these managers of processes, these managers of information, these sort of intermediary uh, functions, which covers a lot of different roles that, uh, you know, started to become salient um, uh, when Burnham was writing, I think in the years perhaps just before World War I, this started to become evident. Uh, but we would clearly recognize now as a lot of people who belong broadly to what's called the professional managerial class, the new class, this the sort of collection of upper middle class managerial and uh, to some extent creative class roles, that those people now have become uh, the kind of not the 1%, you know, they, they haven't displaced the sort of billionaire oligarchic class, but they've become the dominant uh, class in society the way that the bourgeois had been prior to them. Then, before World War I, uh, you get the first attempt, because the class conflict ramps up, you get the first attempt at resolving this accelerating class conflict caused by the uh, contradictions and, and the... Uh, you know, the, the suffering wrought by industrialization, where governments try to, to broker uh, certain forms of compromise, you know, uh, better conditions for workers, restraints on capital, etc. That ebbs a bit. And then during World War II comes back. Uh, and in the years prior to World War II, as you have competition with communism and with fascism comes back in the West in the forms of these democratic pluralist dispensations and this kind of associationalism where, for you give the example of Herbert Hoover, uh, and I'm just going to quote from the book here, Herbert Hoover, the acclaimed head of the Food Administration during the war, became Commerce Secretary from 1921 to 1928 and President from 29 to 33. Although he claimed to be a free market liberal, Hoover supported high tariffs and favored a purely voluntary system of business labor cooperation known as associ associationalism under which businesses would maintain high wages and unions would avoid strikes. And so broadly, that sort of associationalism becomes even more uh, developed under the New Deal where you get these uh, tripartite systems where there's business uh, workers and government all represented and government acts as a sort of uh, supra superstructure uh, broker and compromise between these competing forces. Also, there is a cultural element where you still have at this point in, in American life and in 
and in the West more generally, these intermediary civic and cultural cultural institutions, labor unions, uh, you know, fraternal organizations, and then most obviously uh, the church um, that act as a kind of cultural counterweight restraining the more technocratic impulses of the managerial elite. Fast forward, I'm condensing a lot here. Fast forward, you hit, uh, this, this works out very well for a number of decades, this democratic pluralism with these countervailing forces where, you know, contrary to our, our ideas now, perhaps in retrospect of, uh, you know, uh, what free market liberalism meant at the time, you know, there were actually, there was government support for unionization after, in the earlier part of the 20th century, fierce opposition to unionization, government realizes, hey, if we want to stave off fascism, communism, or uh, dire open class warfare, we need to actually give workers some power. Um, because if we don't provide the outlets for that power in a sanctioned way, we're just uh, setting the conditions for revolt. That holds more or less until the era of stagflation in the late 70s, at which point you get the modern technocratic neoliberalism, which starts to dismantle the system of democratic pluralism in favor of a libertarian approach to markets that is combined with a post-60s, let's say, hybrid of civil rights and individual rights doctrine on the one hand, and then the kind of twinned libertinism, uh, maybe libertinism is too moralizing, but a, a doctrine both of civil rights and of expansive individual rights that uh, delegitimize institutions like, say, the church as moral arbiters. And that that technocratic neoliberalism is what creates the conditions for the populist upswell of the last several years, and that it's only going to get worse and probably will lead America into a, a more decrepit oligarchic state unless this new class war is uh, resolved in some way by granting power to workers. Is that about right? Yeah, that's that's a, a brilliant a, a description of my thesis. Uh, it's not potted at all. It's, well, thank uh, quite, you. <laughs> quite accurate. Uh, and particularly the point about the continuity between the 1920s Republicans and the uh, 1930s New Deal Democrats. Uh, and this, this is one of the big myths that, that uh, partly because so many historians were New Deal Democrats, uh, that there was this ruthless, plutocratic uh, Republican elite and it just wanted to crush labor all the way up until Franklin Roosevelt was elected and then he saved the working people. Uh, in fact, if you go back to McKinley and Theodore Roosevelt, they were intervening to try to broker peace among unions uh, and uh, employers. J.P. Morgan, the great financier, put pressure on companies uh, to deal with, with labor. You had the National Civic Federation in the early 20th century. Uh, so uh, president was Mark Hanna, the Ohio senator, and McKinley Backard's vice president was Samuel Gompers, the head of the oh, wow. Federation of Labor. Uh, and even in the 1920s, President Calvin Coolidge, who is thought of as a lazy, fair free marketeer, addressed labor union leaders and accepted the legitimacy of uh, strikes in the private sector, not the public sector. Both Coolidge and Franklin Roosevelt later said you can't have public employees going on strike. As did uh, Fiorello LaGuardia. Right, right. Since we're in New York. You know, so, but so uh, 
so the real uh, precursor, I think, for this system we're in now is in the South, in the southern United States, between Reconstruction and the uh, uh, Civil Rights Revolution and the industrialization of the South with the Sun Belt, which began and accelerated uh, in World War II. And in that period, it is, you know, the, the U.S. and the North and the South were two different countries. So in the North, you have the industrial corporations. You have the leading uh, statesmen of, of the Republicans and the Democrats saying we need to work out this kind of tripartite class compromise. In the South, you have the Southern bourbon ruling class based largely in commodities and in, you know, uh, land, their landlords uh, or, or, you know, oil well owners. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, to them, their comparative advantage is crushing right. labor and having poor white and poor black labor whom you rent out to uh, northern-owned or British-owned corporations. Uh, so it was in that period that you had the great efflorescence of the southern demagogue, right, of, uh, of, of whom Huey Long was the most successful, but there were just dozens of them. Uh, and you had a pattern that really doesn't fit what we think of as left and right. It was more of insiders and outsiders. Uh, in all of these southern states, including my native Texas, you had these courthouse gangs and these statehouse gangs. It was the richest families uh, uh, in this kind of backward commodity sector. Uh, and, uh, you know, they did deals with the uh, foreign investors, foreign meaning outside the South. Right. Uh, and, you know, they, they unions were crushed. All of African-Americans and about half of whites in the South were disfranchised from voting by property uh, tests and literacy tests and things like that before the 1960s. And so consequently, you had this kind of doom loop between oligarchy, which ran the South most of the time. And populist and populism, right. yeah, And then the, the populist demagogues would arise. And so the other uh, area where you had the populist demagogues in that period before the 19, uh, late 20th century, uh, it was in the northeastern cities where you had a European immigrant diasporas who were frozen out of the power structure. Uh, so you had Mayor Michael Curley, who actually became governor of, of, of he was mayor of Boston, governor of uh, Massachusetts, and he was kind of the Irish-American demagogic populist. You had Mario Procaccio in, in New York. You had Frank Rizzo in Philadelphia. And it was a pattern which in some ways, I argue, in the book anticipates the national pattern now. So in these northeastern cities, there was a division among whites, and it wasn't just class, it was ethnic. But I would say that, that the, the, the demagogic populace of the Northeast in that era, um, because they were part of a system of horse trading, um, it's not uh, as dangerous as the southern oligarchic uh, populist cycle. There was ugly rhetoric in the Northeast, there were ugly practices, certainly corruption, uh, and not just the honest graft variety, but, you know, outright corruption ran rampant. But because there were these, uh, this competition between different uh, groups, some of that produced actually a reasonable compromise and a sense of politics as a system of not just of spoils, but also of compromise. And so yeah, well, that, 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 that's right. And yeah. in, in the Northeast, you had what the South lacked, which was functioning parties. Right. And, and party organizations, right. and you had unions, 
and you had uh, business federations so they could cut deals. In the South, there was just this uh, total social vacuum. And I want to I stick on that point for a second because I think it's critical to the argument you're making about this new class war. Um, because as I understand it, what you're saying is that the there is no effective counterweight now to the um, managerial class, to the overclass, that isn't uh, sort of erratic, volatile populism. So the erratic, volatile populism that we have now in the form of Trumpism most manifestly is the response to the domination of the, the technocratic uh, neoliberal class. So what I wanted to, to get at for a second was uh, just how explosive the growth of this managerial class was that, that you're described. There's an essay in Jacobin magazine recently. It's a uh, uh, left-wing sort of premier socialist magazine in America now. It's a very good essay on white-collar populism by a writer named uh, Dustin Guastella. And he describes, quote, the massive expansion and centralization of the welfare state in the 30s and 40s greatly enlarged the means of administration. Where in 1929, only 18% of government employees were under the federal government's hire. By 1947, this increased to 37%. The continued rationalization and expansion of the corporate structure also meant more managers, administrators, and supervisors. The overall effect was dramatic, whereas the number of wage workers grew by about 225% from 1870 to 1940. The white-collar mass of managers, salaried professionals, and office workers rose by an astounding 1,600%. So those are the the preconditions for the rise of um, this class that you're describing, the overclass that you're describing in this book. Uh, and, and what I'm wondering is, given their cultural and governmental power at the moment and their sense that the populist expression of the working class through Trumpism most obviously is illegitimate, as you say, because it's either fascist or it's, it's a Russian threat, what would it take to bring them around to the kind of compromise that you're saying is necessary? Well, you know, you brought out uh, very brilliantly the contrast between my view of the managerial elite and uh, what I think is kind of the intelligent center-left view uh, of what they call the professional managerial class, uh, which uh, they define as largely as professionals uh, in the government, in the academy, in the nonprofit sector, the the helping professions, and so on, uh, which they see as a distinct class from the capitalists, who in quasi-Marxist fashion, they think, to quote Bernie Sanders, the billionaires, right? Uh, And so, you know, some of the the smarter leftists uh, think that, well, you can have an alliance between this PMC and the uh, working class proper, the high school educated people who wear uniforms to work. So you'll have this coalition of professors and nonprofit activists and journalists with the uh, private sector working class to rein in the capitalists. And I think this is what's behind the Bernie Sanders campaign, the Warren campaign. It's, it's that kind of idea of, of uh, you know, I differ with this for two uh, uh, reasons. The first is I think that group is real. Uh, you know, it's a, it, it's a faction within right. the managerial overclass. It is not a class in itself. 
Uh, and second, I think it's extraordinarily weak because uh, if you look at those categories that are the base of, you know, say the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez movement of the Sanders of the DSA, uh, their money comes from either corporations or the rich. Uh, they are literally grantees. Yep. Most of them, I was in this world. For most of my career, I was right. in the nonprofit sector. I was in the media and journalism. Uh, and either a billionaire was directly paying my salary or it was a grant from a corporation or a big donor foundation. Uh, so, you know, their relation to the means of production, you know, in, in uh, Marxist terms, makes them extremely weak. Uh, second, I'm not convinced that their uh, interests are really the same as that of the uh, private sector, high school educated working class. Uh, if you look at reforms uh, like universal free college, you know, a number of people have pointed out most people don't go to college, right? So this is kind of a program for the, the upper it's middle class. about 70% of people don't, have, don't go, yeah. Don't go, right? So, and, and of the 30% or so who do go, a uh, disproportionate number have college educated parents. So, you know, why would the government be subsidizing right. this credentialing of, of this wing of the uh, overclass? Uh, and if you look at universal child care, uh, if it's not combined with direct subsidies to uh, stay-at-home uh, caregivers, then it looks very much like the government is providing nannies to uh, uh, you know career, mm -hmm. uh, not just women, but caregivers yeah. and, of two-earner couples or maybe their single parents. Uh, but, you know, essentially, you know, a lot of this kind of PMC stuff, their idea of the welfare state is a welfare state that is tailored uh, to the interests of college educated professionals who are devoted to their careers. And you would get a quite different welfare state uh, if it were working class uh, households where uh, maybe neither member of the household thinks of the job as a career, it's a job, right? Yeah, I think there's a division within the left now and that the tendency you're describing is the, the majority uh, faction that's probably uh, more aligned with Warren's actual policies, but uh, certainly aligned with most Bernie's supporters, if not Bernie's rhetoric. But I think the division is, you know, there have been, I, I can think of three prominent essays recently about the PMC from the left. One is this Jacobin piece I just mentioned, which I thought was excellent. Actually, all three of them are very good. Barbara Ehrenreich had a piece in Dissent, and then there was an essay in American Affairs, actually, because it was, I, I expect, the only place it was publishable for her, by Amber Frost uh, on this as well. I think the view that you're describing is sort of, sounds to me like the, the Warrenite view, which is, we all need to join together to push back against the 1%, right? It's the, the billionaires who are holding us down and, and us uh, upper middle class professionals and you, uh, you know, precariously employed people um, in the parts of the country that we occasionally uh, look to, we can join together and, and we'll push back. And as you're pointing out, most of the policies in this sort of popular front redound to the benefit of the upper middle class. So it's not so much of a, a, a real coalition. There is a second um, leftist tendency these days, which I think you see in, in at least two out of the three essays I just mentioned, which sees the professional managerial class as sort of the guarantors of the oligarchic power structure um, 
but recognizes that there is no real possibility of a, a kind of um, meaningful coalition um, between the working class, N not a uh, voluntary meaningful coalition um, uh, of the working class and the professional managerial class, and, and also recognizes, because I think a point that you make that's hard for people to accept or to get their heads around is the idea that this is where power actually resides, right? Which is not to say that billionaires don't have power. It's not to say that the heads of corporations don't have power. But your book opens with this Burnhamite idea that what matters is power and what not ultimately the only thing, but in matters of politics, the only countervailing force that can restrain power is power. <clears throat> Excuse me. And your point is that where power resides in American life now is with this overclass. And in the aggregate, their aggregate interests are where you see uh, power politically manifested. Um, and, and I think that's, that's difficult for people to accept. It, do you feel that? Well, <laughs> they reject it quite vehemently. Yeah. Uh, you, you get much of the what I call the managerial overclass denying that it is part of the elite. Right. That it has any power. Uh, uh, yesterday there was an essay in a right-wing uh, venue called Front Porch Republic by an author who said, well, I, Mr. Lynn says I'm part of the ruling elite in the United States, but I'm a professor, and, uh, uh, you know, I have a 13-year-old Camry, and it's hard for me to go on international vacations and and all of this. It's kind of like the stuff you see in the newspaper sometimes where he's like, how can you live in Manhattan on $450,000 a year, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we're struggling to keep mm -hmm. our heads above water, the middle class. Uh, and... Uh, uh, the actual in every ruling class in history, whether it was the Southern planter class, the communist nomenclature in the Soviet Union, uh, the vast majority of the elite is not all that elite. Uh, most Southern slave owners own one or two slaves. You know, uh, the aristocracy in middle in medieval England was not mostly dukes and earls. You know, it was just local squires and, and uh, minor petty aristocrats who weren't that much richer than the local peasants. But to say that they're not a ruling class uh, because they're not extraordinarily wealthy, you know, that, that's just wrong. And, the, and again, I push back against this idea of there's this separate capitalist class. If you look at the richest Americans, at people like Bill Gates and, and uh, uh, you know, Michael Bloomberg and, and Tom Steyer, Peter Thiel, uh, they come from middle class or upper middle class, uh, managerial class backgrounds for the most part. College educated parents, you know, right. went to college. They, they're managers who just have a lot of money, uh, but they do not belong to a separate hereditary Downton Abbey cotillion, you know, uh, giving polo playing aristocracy. That just that does that is not the dominant group. And, and to, to my mind, you can illustrate this with a thought experiment. Uh, suppose that tomorrow, the top one percent, all they they're just they just vanish, you know, and, and their their wealth is confiscated, put in some kind of mutual fund that is then socialized or something like that. But all of the CEOs, all of the civil servants, all of the joint chiefs of staff, the uniform military, the civil service, you know, the, at all levels, federal, state, and local, they all remain in place. All the college educated uh, professionals country would go on 
it, it would change in some ways, but but not dramatically. Uh, suppose the you have a neutron bomb and it evaporates everyone with a college diploma, except for the Koch brothers and you know George Soros. Uh, the whole thing would collapse. You know, so uh, uh, I just I think it's kind of a relic of 19th century Marxism. You know, to say that there is a separate capitalist class that is different from the people who actually run the country. I think that there's a tendency to view these things in personal terms that <clears throat> obscures the deeper class realities. And um, so one way to think of it is if you're that professor who wrote the article saying, hey, I'm not part of the, uh, the overclass because I can't take uh, as many vacations as I like, you're assuming that your class position is best described in terms of uh, your purchasing power, as opposed to the extent to which the organs of society reflect your interests rather than other people's interests. Exactly. We have a very hard time thinking in those terms, in part, I think, because there's a tendency in the air of liberalism, a, a an obscurantist universalizing tendency that makes the recognition of real conflict. You know, there's like a, a, a tendency to turn away from the idea of the, even the possibility of conflict. But in fact, whether you can take as many vacations as you want or not, the, the structures of the society around you beginning, let's say with the municipal government are much more shaped to represent your interests um, than, than the interests of, uh, it depends obviously on what part of the country you live in, and this could be more or less true. But, but let's say that the determination about whether you belong to um, this class or not has more to do with the, the degree to which your interests are represented by the organs of power and much less to do with your individual opportunities. Well, to paraphrase my old uh, friend James Carville, who said it's the economy stupid during the Bill Clinton campaign night, it's the power stupid. Uh, the premise, uh, and this is true of all mainstream conservatives and progressives, is that power really d doesn't exist in, in America. Uh, there are just differences of money. Uh, John Steinbeck had this great phrase, a temporarily embarrassed right. millionaire. Right, right, right. So, so for the uh, Paul Ryan Republicans, you know, working class people are temporarily embarrassed millionaires. They just haven't founded their own business and become rich yet. And and I think for a, a lot of the the center left, uh, uh, working class Americans are temporarily embarrassed professionals. You know, they just haven't gotten their master's degree yet. You know, or their PhD or they their, sort of their STEM education. That's that, their STEM education. And uh, uh, and I think you know, in a strange way, Marxists. Uh, liberals, uh, center-left liberals, and libertarians all share this uh, uh, neglect of power. Uh, that is, at the end of the day, they think we're already in this kind of uh, equality of power among people uh, and uh, groups and classes in conflict. And so if, if just the resources are adequately distributed, then there would be no conflict. And, uh, you know, I'm... I'm a realist. My background was in foreign policy. I approached domestic policy as a clash of interests. And as uh, Ezra Klein pointed out in, in a, a, a thoughtful interview I had with him, uh, in the new class war, I go back again and again and again to the idea of class compromise, of cross-class uh, uh, cross peace treaties. You can only have a compromise 
if there are two sides. Right. Right? And you can only have a compromise if the two sides each have th their own legitimate interests. If one side is wholly evil you know, or completely deluded, then there's no basis for a compromise. They just need to be either corrected or crushed. Uh, and so, and this, but I find this is, I get the most resistance for this idea that there could be actual clashes of equally legitimate interests. So what you're describing, actual clashes of equally legitimate interests, is value pluralism, yeah. right? And um, and before we get into value pluralism, which I, I do want to discuss, let me give an example of what you're talking about with the structure of the class from the book that I thought was very telling. We tend to think still in meritocratic terms of education as an indicator of attainment. So the causal relationship is you attain a higher education, you go to college, you get a degree, and because you got a degree, you're going to make more money. In fact, the education is the product of the money. You, the education is the credentialing system that you were entitled to since birth that stamps you as a member of the class to which you belong. So the, the causal relationship is not that there is something intrinsic to uh, contemporary higher education, broadly speaking, that gives you the means in a in a vacuum or, or uh, absent the privileges of your hereditary position to make more money or to advance in society. Your point is that the education reflects the hereditary caste into which you were born, and that that uh, that idea. And look, for me, ten years ago, that would have been a, a difficult idea to swallow. I that is not the way I wanted to think about America. And I had certain sentimental ideas about the country, not all of which uh, I have relinquished, but uh, some of which I, I was stubbornly attached to. And um, the idea that there are hereditary castes in America, recaste is too strong, hereditary classes, or something very much resembling them, was, uh, was a hard idea to come to in part, I think, because the, the waters that feed this in terms of our beliefs, leaving political economy aside for a second and going to the nature of liberal belief, you're talking about people having a very hard time accepting this idea that there could be other people with legitimate interests. There is something within the system of liberalism as a, as a body of ideas and beliefs that very powerfully subsumes antagonisms, antagonistic philosophies into itself and uh, disarms them by subsuming them into itself rather than uh, committing itself to open conflict. And there's a way in which um, particularly sort of late 20th century liberalism has tended away from early ideas of value pluralism and uh, modus vivendi, as John Gray uh, might call it, and towards a sort of monistic single truth that the administrative state needs to enforce. And that is not just a kind of, it seems to me at least, that is not just that sort of monism, the single truth on which corporations, the government, and the uh, sort of avatars of the uh, overclass converge on any number of social or cultural issues. Um, 
that is not just a function of cynical calculations by, you know, it's not just machinations of power behind the scenes. People, the people espousing these things, the, let's say, lower tier, overclass manager, they really believe them. And they find it very hard to believe that a conflicting belief might be legitimate on its own terms. Um, you know, I, I think that that is a deep sort of epistemological uh, quality of modern yeah, liberalism. It, it's the hegemonic ideology yeah. of both the center left and the center right uh, uh, is this idea of meritocracy. So if you're center right, uh, you know, kind of soft libertarian, uh, then the U.S. is already a meritocracy, you know, and maybe, you know, so, so are Western European democracies. Uh, the only thing holding people back is bad government intervention in the economy. But if you unclog that, then they can, uh, you know, uh, sell their labor for the maximum wage. They can found their own businesses, become rich. Uh, the central left version is the country is already completely meritocratic with the exception of race and gender which is why they have to turn every single conversation to race and gender because it's already a classless society, right? Uh, and it's only existing current racism and current uh, misogynistic anti-female discrimination that explains any uh, disparities. It's, you can't explain it in class. And if you're, uh, you know, uh, a poor Appalachian, you know, mining families uh, progeny, you know, male or female, then there are no barriers to your advancement, right? You know, because you're white, uh, particularly if you're white male. Uh, so the, the thing is that, the, I'm, you know, there is a world of reality as opposed to ideology. And in the world of reality, uh, and I have the data in the new class war, uh, badly scoring students from the wealthiest families are far more likely in the United States to get college diplomas than the highest scoring students from poor families. That's just a fact. Uh, and this is not limited to the United States. It's true in Canada. It's true in Western Europe. Uh, they have somewhat more intergenerational mobility. But uh, there's a correlation between uh, parentage, heredity, and uh, uh, getting these college credentials, which are the marker of overclass status in every modern industrial democracy. And if you take that seriously, then uh, you can be all in favor of meritocracy. I think we should do everything we can to promote uh, upward mobility and, and for uh, people to rise to the highest level their talents permit. But if you get 10% of the working class moves into the overclass every generation, or I don't know, 20 or 30%, that leaves 70% who are going to be in the class into which they were born, the class of their working class parents. Uh, and saying, well, uh, you had a chance, but you blew it. You're just too dumb. Or you, you know, didn't put enough effort into becoming a corporate manager or an NGO executive <laughs> or whatever, you know, a lawyer or a doctor, uh, that just adds insult to injury uh, because you're saying that being working class is not dignified, uh, that you have to aspire to something above being working class. Of course, you're going to have a revolution when you tell 70% of the population that they should be ashamed of what they do every day. Or ashamed of who they are. Who ashamed of who they are, ashamed of who their parents were. Right, without recognizing the way in which your own view uh, conflates those two, the, the, the who they are and the what they do. Um, and, and then when you use the uh, marginal utility theory 
of wages, which is a tautology uh, that economists use, uh, mainstream neoclassical economists and, and libertarian free market conservatives. Uh, so that holds that whatever you are paid reflects your contribution to the economy, just by definition. Uh, so you're paid so much because that's how much you're worth, and you're worth that much because that's your contribution. Uh, uh, you know, the liberal version of this is, well, you know, maybe you could improve people's status somewhat by sending more people to college. If you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, of the top 10 occupations that are being created in the greatest numbers in the United States, and they fall into three categories, uh, leisure and hospitality, retail, and healthcare, only registered nurses need any education beyond high school and a few weeks or months of on-the-job training. All of these other jobs, which are perfectly legitimate jobs, there is nothing shameful about being a home health aide. There's nothing shameful about being a waiter. Uh, but the people are poorly paid, not because they are undereducated. They have all the education they need to be waiters or home health aides, uh, because they lack bargaining power with their employers. But, right. There is a sort of deeper um, philosophical current that looks to why is it that the you, you explain the changes in the kind of democratic dispensation in terms of political economy, which I think is a useful, I think is probably the, the best way to look at it and also a useful corrective to all the kind of ideological theorizing that's gone on. And certainly the, the reintroduction of the understanding of class conflict as a driver of history and not only for Marxists uh, is very important if we're going to get anywhere. But there's a sort of also a philosophical current that attempts to understand, I think, why the ideology of the managerial class formed in the way it did and, and what the antecedents and the causes were. And it seems like the, the you know, the, the kind of hybrid of progressivism and uh, uh, liberal ideas of truth have made it so that it's very difficult, um, very difficult in theory for people to accept the idea of compromise as theoretically legitimate. Uh, you know, forget about achieving compromise in practice, but we've, we are conceiving, especially in anything that's put in terms of identity, um, we're conceiving of all of these conflicts as being existential and there being only one legitimate position that people can arrive at. And that legitimate position um, always has to do with the uh, sort of expansion of the rights regime to ever more groups. Um, and, and now there's this talk of redistribution of equity. Let's say now I, I'm somebody who I don't think that Trump was uh, elected by Nazis or by Russians, but I don't, uh, I don't throw out the idea that, uh, you know, race and ethnicity are parts of the way that people form their own identities and form meaning in their lives, especially in societies where the other generative institutions have disappeared. So maybe fewer people, uh, would be um, looking to sort of white identity politics if they had uh, other cultural institutions in which they could be communally engaged and, and derive meaning. But in the absence of that, it doesn't, it's not at all hard for me to imagine 
um, a certain white resentment being part of the, the political scene in certain places without suggesting that it was determinative of the election. I, you know, I think that one criticism of the book is that you have not addressed, uh, you've, you've addressed some of Trump's racist statements and the, the sort of ugliness of populist demagoguery, but that you haven't dealt with those sorts of identity categories enough. How would you respond to that? Well, what I, uh, I point out is when I'm talking about uh, the working class of the heartlands as opposed to the hub cities, I say mostly or disproportionately white and native, but not exclusively. So I think the, this working class in the U.S. and Britain and so on uh, is multiracial. Uh, if you look at uh, Britain, a third of the black and Middle Eastern, the so-called BAME voters, voted for Brexit. If you look at the United States, 29% of uh, Latinos voted for Trump. So uh, uh, you know, I, I spent a great deal of time talking about, well, why do you have this kind of three-way pattern where you get white elites uh, from the professional managerial class uh, clustered in these uh, hub cities, uh, allied with uh, both native minorities, some native minorities, by no means all of them, but a majority, and a majority of uh, recent immigrant groups uh, against this other working class. And billionaires, right? And in, the, billionaires. in the first group you described. Right, you know, and then billionaires, yeah. who tend to just be the richer members of the managerial professional class. Uh, and, and I use uh, Edna Bonasich's uh, split labor market theory. Uh, and But essentially... If you're uh, African-American or you're, you know, a recent immigrant from Guatemala or, you know, Nairobi or wherever, uh, you're experiencing upward mobility. Things are getting better, right? Uh, so you're naturally part of this coalition with the uh, affluent professionals who are doing quite well during the Great Recession and their stocks are recovered and going up. Uh, if you're a downwardly mobile uh, white working class, you know, person in an industrial region, or in some cases, uh, Latino or African American or Asian American, then you have a different experience. Uh, but I don't think you can simply say that uh, the working class uh, people are all motivated by white nationalism. Uh, and white racism, come on, this country, it's only been 50 years since we got rid of apartheid in the United States. And white racism is a real thing. Uh, according to all indices, including racial intermarriage, which is the ultimate index, it's been consistently declining. It's still there with a substantial minority of the population. A variable, much less a declining uh, or a constant, uh, much less a declining constant, cannot explain variables like the sudden eruption of populism in the second decade of, if this is really all about Bull Connor, in the backlash to the civil rights uh, movement, then why didn't it happen in the 1970s and 80s? And to some degree, there was uh, a backlash. Uh, if it's all about immigration, well, there was proposition, uh, what was the California proposition in, in California? Uh, I forget the number, right. Yeah, but, you know, so, but you, so you can't constantly explain right. uh, novel developments right. like this upheaval in the last uh, decade in terms of things that have been around for 50 or 60 years. Let me give you a, another way of looking at white identity politics in the context of uh, the contemporary scene. We ran an essay here uh, by a, a PhD student at the University of Virginia named Zach Goldberg. It was a very good essay, a tablet, 
title is America's White Saviors. And what the essay was about was the way in which the most liberal wing of the Democratic Party, which is overwhelmingly white liberals, uh, they have effectively uh, taken over control of the Democratic Party or exert a vastly disproportionate control over the Democratic Party and have radicalized it uh, along a number of vectors to the point where they show a... uh, uh, what is it? Not a, not a preference, but a, a negative disposition towards members of the in group. So white liberals are the only group you can survey or the only group among the demographic groups surveyed who express a negative feeling towards the in group. So if you ask white liberals how they feel about white people, they have more negative than positive feelings. People who self-identify as white liberals. Those white liberals, because they're wealthier, because they're more politically active, and I think because they they view politics, perhaps politics takes up a larger part of the uh, driving force in their lives, exert disproportionate influence over the Democratic Party. And if on a number of what they consider key civil rights issues, immigration, uh, uh, you know, affirmative action, um, they have not only pushed the party positions on these things to the left, they've pushed it to the left of where the, let's say, affected minority groups, uh, where their median position is. So in other words, if you poll white liberals in terms of their feelings about affirmative action, they will tend to be to the left of where the average, the median black American position is on the same question. So I bring that up just to say that, you know, when people want to talk about uh, race and, and the ways in which race is a, uh, you know, motivating factor in politics, that's also, uh, I think, worth looking at, not wholly determinative any more than sort of white resentment politics of the right would be wholly determinative, but certainly something, um, certainly something worth looking at. Well, I think there's a, a danger of white nationalism that comes chiefly from within the white overclass, not from below. Uh, if you look at these people, and they're fairly minor, they're exaggerated by the Democratic press, like Richard Spencer yeah. and so on. But but there is this kind of subculture of so-called race realists and people obsessed with eugenics and IQ and so on. These are college-educated yes, they are. professionals and managers. You know, these are not laid-off industrial workers in, in Ohio or Illinois or somewhere. Uh, and... Uh, and actually, if you look historically, if you look at the, the, Ku Klux, the original Ku Klux Klan, was simply the ex-Confederate soldiers in the South. The second Klan in the 1920s, it was the upper middle class. It was the Protestant bourgeoisie. It was not the working class. Uh, if you look at the Nazis, uh, their greatest resistance came from the working class, which supported uh, social democrats and communists. It also came from the Catholic Church and from... Uh, ardent Protestant groups like Mennonites and, and so on. Uh, they had enormous support from the German intelligentsia, from the professors. So the earliest the high adopters service, the, early adopters. The high, high intelligentsia were the, yeah. Yeah. the, yeah. And so, the so, vanguard Nazi. Yeah. Right. And, and so like the idea that, I mean, it's just absurd if you think about it, uh, uh, that these laid off factory workers are also part of brilliantly constructed cells of a white nationalist movement that the college-educated 
whites are not part of. I mean, this just makes no sense. What I don't think is absurd, though, is that uh, legitimate economic grievances are not, nor need they be always uh, distinct or separate from ugly nativist tendencies. No, I I don't don't argue that. And and I'm not suggesting at all that you argue that, but I I see, uh, you know, for instance, I, I... I am somebody who supports a more restrictive immigration system than the one we currently have for reasons very much in line with what you lay out about the wage depressing effects of split labor markets. Um, but, you know, there there are there, I think, is a rise of um, ugly nativist rhetoric in America that I don't at all blame on the left as if these things were that closely correlated, but that exists in tandem with an absolutism on the left that sees all pro-restrictionist argument. You know, my friend Ryan Salam wrote a very thoughtful, moderate book, Son of uh, Muslim Immigrants to America, wrote a very thoughtful, moderate book about why uh, a more selective, restrictive immigration policy would be good for the country and particularly good for the working class. He was denounced as a fascist by a whole number of people. Um, well, it, it, historically, uh, labor, including organized labor, wants to have tight labor markets. Right. Uh, but it, unfortunately, uh, the workers also have ethnic identities and racial identities. So it's perfectly rational for Samuel Gompers and uh, the AFL around the turn of the century to impose guest workers, so-called Chinese coolies being brought in to replace American citizen and even, you know, immigrant workers. Uh, but, you know, not only Gompers, but also uh, Eugene Debs. Right. Just all sorts of nasty slurs about uh, Asians uh, and, uh, and some European immigrant groups like Italians. So I think the only thing you can do is you can acknowledge that, you denounce racial and ethnic nativism, but you stick to your guns on uh, immigration as a, as an economic policy. Right. Uh, and you do not allow yourself to be intimidated into silence by what, are, what is really the employer lobby. One of the things that has happened in the last 20 years is, uh, in, in the book, uh, I essentially argue for the trade policy of the AFL-CIO of 1995. Right. And the immigration policy that Barbara Jordan's Commission on Immigration which was largely backed by labor economists, uh, proposed in 1996. Barbara Jordan, the first uh, black Southern uh, Exactly, from, from Texas. Uh, and so now here we are in 2020, and the so-called progressive view on free trade and uh, immigration is that borders are illegitimate, that anyone who wants to lower uh, numbers of unskilled immigrants, even for economic reasons, uh, is a racist, Anyone who opposes offshoring of industry to countries like China is a nativist and racist. Well, look, I'm, I'm old enough to remember. These were the arguments being made by the Cato Institute Libertarians and by Reason Magazine, the flagship of libertarian thought in uh, the 1970s and 1980s and 1990s. So there's this realignment that has gone on where much of the so-called left uh, is actually simply the libertarians of 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, and as you've seen, the Democratic Party shed its uh, working class uh, blue collar uh, base to the Republicans. Slowly but surely, the Republicans are kind of picking up uh, uh, you know, some of their economic interests. Right. 
you bring up China, and I think that's a, a good transition to what I think should be the concluding section of this portion. So your argument that what we need in order to avoid a degeneration into a kind of even more uh, into into a South American style uh, oligarchic uh, regime in America, that or you know potentially more open conflict, is that we need these sorts of brokered class compromises, and the only way we can achieve those brokered class compromises is through the uh, recreation or regeneration of institutions that represent the working class. That's the first part. The second part is the only impetus, the only plausible impetus for people in positions of power, the managerial class, the only plausible impetus for the elite to want to get involved in that sort of compromise is either going to be real revolutionary pressure from below or uh, an external threat, which I think, uh, you know, we can just name as China for now, granting that there are other conceivable threats, but that the near horizon, the threat that will most plausibly fill that role is China. Let's start with the, the first part first, though, and that is where will these working class institutions come from? And you sketch out some forms that they could take in the book. And you also had a recent uh, essay in the Wall Street Journal where you, you discuss this as well. But the sorts of institutions you're talking about broadly are not only uh, collective bargaining organizations like unions or guilds, um, but also cultural institutions uh, that could play a role like the church once played where they sort of are a counterweight in terms of uh, the uh, what sort of uh, messages are, are uh, being broadcast in the culture, what the kind of normative position of the culture is, let's say. Um, so churches took, let's say, many years to, to develop and, and, uh, and have declined rather precipitously over the last century. Guilds took hundreds of years to emerge. Unions in America had a very fitful history, very violent at the turn of the 20th century, and then uh, acquired great power, as you describe in the book, before uh, they entered this period of uh, decline that you say is a sort of deliberately provoked decline um, brought on by a combination of sort of libertarian uh, corporatists and uh, technocratic neoliberals. So, in order to get those sorts of institutions back, I can see one of two scenarios. One scenario would be you'd have to wait a very long time for a kind of bottom-up regeneration. The other scenario is, and if you waited a long time, perhaps they would no longer have any impact on the, the present uh, crisis, which would have long since degenerated into whatever else. The other scenario is they'd have to be brought about in some sort of top-down way that would expedite the process. If they were brought about in that top-down way, wouldn't it at least threaten to delegitimize them or mean that they were co-opted by the powers that they were supposed to be counterweights against? What do you think of that? Well, I, I don't believe in, in the first option. I mean, no amount of victories for Fight for 15 for janitors is going to recreate collective bargaining in the United States. And, and if you look at the actual history of it, it was top-down. Uh, that is, the unions struggled as hard as they could, and then World War I started, and suddenly uh, Samuel Compers, the head of the AFL, is invited into the government and is sharing power on corporatist tripartite bodies. 
for the duration of the war. Then after the war, there's a business counteroffensive. Uh, unions are crushed again. Uh, Pearl Harbor, same thing, even more. Uh, the, the great gains in unionization took place between 1941 and 1945, uh, and they lasted longer this time. They lasted a couple of decades. And those gains, you, you say, were... Uh, the Roosevelt administration. The government leading those unions. Yeah, they said, oh, yeah. okay, you know... Uh, Private industry is going to switch to war production, and uh, uh, if you want a government contract, you have to cut a deal with the unions. And they had a maintenance of membership, so if it was already unionized, all new members automatically became members of the union. Uh, and this lasted uh, in uh, Texas because the government actually built the steel factories in Texas and much of the South, and the war production factories. So there were even, you know, steel workers unionized in, in uh, Texas, and they helped back the career of uh, Barbara Jordan, my uh, predecessor as a professor at the University of Texas, a first black congresswoman uh, from Texas. So uh, I think realistically, uh, in the context of great power rivalry with China and who knows, down the road, India, somebody else, uh, you will have a, a nationalist, uh, in the Theodore Roosevelt or Franklin Roosevelt sense, not the, you know, uh, illiberal sense, uh, patriotic uh, uh, part of the managerial leadership class, will say, okay, we're going to have an industrial policy. It may be fairly low level. I mean, it may, it's not, we're not fighting World War II. It may be a Cold War, maybe even less than a Cold War. Uh, but we are going to foster, you know, certain industries in the United States, certain strategic industries, and the condition for being allowed to invest in those industries or to take part as firms uh, is that you do certain, uh, follow certain labor organizations. So, so I, I really do envision it would be top down in that sense. Now, that wouldn't necessarily be the entire economy. Uh, you can start with the portion of the economy in which the government plays the largest role, which is defense and, and manufacturing and uh, tech, which is almost completely dependent on the federal government for basic research. And you just say, so, so the collective bargaining part would be part of a larger industrial policy. And it would have other aspects. It would say, we're going to keep an industrial commons in the United States. There are going to be restrictions on what you can offshore for national security reasons, perfectly uh, explicable. There are going to be restrictions on foreign ownership of assets. Oh, and by the way, uh, you know, in the aerospace industry, there's going to be sectoral bargaining between uh, the aerospace contractors and their workers, and it won't be disruptive enterprise bargaining. And you know, we, we don't want constant chaos and strikes, and we don't want wildcat strikes. But you know, there's going to be this uh, bargaining and, and take it or leave it, right? Uh, and I think that is more likely to be the way that uh, collective bargaining returns to the U.S. In the context of a national industrial policy motivated partly by national security reasons. Then this uh, center-left vision of the PMC, the the professors and nonprofit executives of the world, teaming up with the proletariat against the capitalists. So I have a, uh, you might call it a blended vision, or you might call it an incoherent vision. I, I'll be curious to, to see um, how you respond. But it seems to me that elements of both of those, uh, both of those strategies, would be. Uh, would, a blended uh, policy that combines some antitrust regulation with an industrial policy um, would be the best route. And, and you have a very idios idiosyncratic position, I think, 
might be the best way to describe it. You know, you're, you're very hard to uh, pigeonhole politically, as I think has been um, part of your mystique for many years. Um, uh, but you are pro-big business, which is not a position that most people identify with somebody who is also principally defined by uh, wanting to empower uh, workers' uh, bargaining rights. And I, I think that you make a, a strong case. People can read the, uh, I think it was in Politico, you wrote it, an essay, it's also in the book, you make the case for it. Without getting into all of that here, the, the, the industrial policy is a way to jumpstart key manufacturing sectors and also strategic sectors of the economy, telecom being one obvious example. Since there's no way we're going to compete with Huawei, it, it appears without some sort of external stimulus to, to make this happen or impetus to make this happen. That that could be combined with antitrust. And that the reason to combine that with antitrust is that not because scale is necessarily a bad thing, but because the tendency of the tech monopolies is one example is to continue once they achieve a monopolistic share of a market is to continually shift resources away from innovation and towards marketing, which is what we have seen in the tech industry. And it's part of the reason why there's been this, you know, dramatic plateau in terms of innovation coming out of Silicon Valley for over uh, a decade, for quite a long time now, in part because they don't invest as much in research and development anymore, uh, because they, they own these industries now, the, the large monopolistic tech companies essentially have their parallel fiefdoms and uh, don't have any great pressure on them to make gains in productivity through innovation. And so that's where I could see a sort of blended approach. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think if you look at this new uh, progressive antitrust school, there's a dumb argument for antitrust and there's an intelligent argument. The dumb argument... So the one is, I didn't just make. No, you did not just okay. make. I'm, I'm just pointing it out. Thank you. Uh, the dumb <coughs> argument is that uh, large firms have great monopsony power in terms of bargaining for wages with individual workers. Uh, therefore, if you break up the firms, then individual workers will have uh, more bargaining. That's just dumb. I mean, uh, if you break Facebook into five little baby Facebooks, the janitor is not going to have that much more bargaining power. You know, you need collective bargaining. That's why you have organized labor. So workers can uh, pool. You know, and, and it's interesting to see a lot of kind of Clinton, Obama, neoliberals glom onto this antitrust thing because it's a way of avoiding labor unions. Right. You don't have to mention right. labor, right? right? Uh, it's the smart argument, which is the one you made about innovation. Uh, you know, there's a precedent for this. Uh, during the Cold War, the Defense Department, uh, you know, essentially funded the development of the jet engine, nuclear energy, you know, the early computers, uh, the Internet, all of that. Uh, and they forced the defense contractors to pool their patents uh, and to share their uh, intellectual property with each other. Uh, so it was still very concentrated. I mean, you know, these were big firms. It was IBM and it was Boeing and so on. Uh, but they could not use, create their own fiefdoms, as you say, uh, and try to wall uh, uh, their competitors out. Uh, you know, the, the term for this is an industrial commons, where they're, yeah. they compete on some areas and they collaborate on others 
the other thing that you could do in a strategic sector where this is brokered by the government is to say, uh, okay, you'll have pooled R&D, right? So all of the firms in AI or robotics or aerospace, you'll, uh, you'll all contribute to a research and development consortium so that the taxpayer doesn't have to pay for all of it, but the products will be shared. You know, the IP will be shared in public. Uh, you will pool the funds needed for retraining workers uh, on the premise that uh, you retrain the workers, you don't just fire them and replace them with indentured servants from other countries, or, or you don't just uh, shut down you know, your uh, facilities in the U.S. and move them to other countries, whether they're allies or potential enemies. So, so I think that uh, this kind of strategic sectoral policy is the most likely way to uh, deal with a lot of these issues. And it will only be in certain sectors. It won't necessarily be in the home health care sector right. or the farming sector. Which is a good thing. Yeah. You wouldn't want right. it to be in every sector. Right. And in fact, I argue in the book, this was the big mistake of the uh, National Industrial Recovery Act of uh, Franklin Roosevelt. It was the first New Deal, which uh, was an attempt for the government to set up sectoral bargaining uh, within particular parts of the economy where instead of having a one-size-fits-all social security, one-size-fits-all minimum wage, that as many Western European countries have done, uh, in the automobile sector, the government would be the uh, umpire uh, and set up bargaining between the unionized workers and all of it, It's sectoral. It's not right. each firm. Right. One of the reasons that fell apart, I think, is because they tried to do dozens and dozens of industries all at once. So I would start with the uh, uh, the defense industry with uh, infra you know highway infrastructure you know uh, home homeland security where there's both a security rationale and there's an infra rationale the Army Corps of Engineers uh, and then build outward from that. It's funny because it's hard to think of anything that would be more of a sort of populist salve and more obviously a move for a transformative president and a big infrastructure project, and yet they never do it. Obama talk about talked it. about, talk it. about it. Obama yeah. talked about it, too, and and somehow it never happens. But um, that's very interesting. I'll just make a, a final note on this, and I'm afraid if we're ever going to be able to talk about this wonderful autumn poem, uh, we should get to it. But we've never been closer in my lifetime. Let me put it this way, actually. That's an overstatement. We've never been closer in my years of paying attention to such things, which is probably the past five, maybe seven years, generously, uh, than we are at the present to sort of industrial policy and the the thinking behind an industrial policy really reaching the mainstream. And it's not just Trumpism. Uh, Marco Rubio just gave a speech on industrial policy. You responded to with a piece in the American Mind and. Some very interesting responses there, also from uh, David Goldman and some other people. And, and Elizabeth Warren has, has done more right. thinking about this than most of the other Democrats. Right. I think these are the terms on which Warren is very impressive. There are all these ways in which Warren's an odd combination of very impressive and unbelievably stupid on other things, in my opinion. But um, maybe cynical is a better word than stupid. But uh, but we we do appear to be moving towards a recognition that something like this is not a heresy. Uh, or we have arrived at a point where this is no longer a heresy, remains to be put into practice, I suppose. Well, I'm, I'm not in favor of 
inventing wars as a justification for social reform or industrial right. policy. But as uh, Trotsky said, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in right. you. And as a realist, I think that there are basically two forms of great power politics, cold peace and cold war, and maybe that can become hot war. So, you know, this is just our future, whether we like it or not. The great powers, as long as the United States wants to be a great power, are going to have low-level technological and industrial rivalries because the industry and, and technology are the basis of military power. Uh, and we should just accept this. This should not be controversial any more than having a military is controversial. You wrote a, uh, a very good piece on this recently for the national interest, I believe, on geoeconomics, which is a term coined by the, uh, the great Edward Ludvok, who is also a tablet writer among his very long list of uh, mysterious and impressive credentials. Um, but I would recommend people read that. It, it makes this case. Um, there's a way in which, you know, there's like a, an internal productive agonism within a democratic agonism being uh, the idea that conflict is inherent to the human condition and to the social condition. There's a internal agonism, which is these countervailing forces in uh, democratic pluralism, and then there's an external agonism, which is this sort of great power structure. And yeah, an external conflict makes it imperative to tamp down and contain internal conflict. Excellent. Well, on that note, the fall of Rome. Um, I have a copy of this here. Would you would you be so kind as to do us the honor and read this poem? This is W.H. Auden. Well, this, this is Auden, uh, uh, first published in uh, 1951, the, the Fall of Rome. The piers are pummeled by the waves. In a lonely field, the rain lashes an abandoned train. Outlaws fill the mountain caves. Fantastic grow the evening gowns. Agents of the fisk pursue absconding tax defaulters through the sewers of provincial towns. Private rites of magic send the temple prostitutes to sleep. All the literati keep an imaginary friend. Cerebratonic Cato may extol the ancient disciplines, but the muscle-bound marines mutiny for food and pay. Caesar's double bed is warm, as an unimportant clerk writes, I do not like my work on a pink official form. Unendowed with wealth or pity, Little birds with scarlet legs, sitting on their speckled eggs, eye each flu-infected city. Altogether elsewhere, vast herds of reindeer move across miles and miles of golden moss, silently and very fast. That was wonderful. Um, it seems to me a sort of perfect Auden poem in the sense that, this is my own prejudice speaking, obviously, it combines uh, brilliance with a sort of overcooked uh, grandiloquence, and, and a, like it's too obvious at points, and then it's perfectly evocative at other points. I find all the best Auden to be to have that uneven quality. And speaking of democratic pluralism, th there was this wonderful, wonderful series that still exists in New York called Poetry in Motion. They would put poems on the subway system. Unfortunately, the quality has sort of gone downhill. The selection is not as good as it used to be. But I was introduced to Auden on the New York subway system through a sort of 
public cultural works project. And the poem was lay your sleeping head. Mm. The first, he's the best first lines on right. lay your sleeping head. My love human on my faithless arm, human on my faithless mm. arm is what's so perfect. Then. But then there are these, and I won't bother reciting them now, but the poem is actually for me, very uneven. And there are other lines that are, sort of too obvious and too... So I don't know, that's how I feel about Auden. Well, he was Auden-esque. To yes, use the, yes. Uh, the adjective. And the Fall of Rome is a very Auden-esque uh, poem. It, it's sort of characteristic of his style, uh, where it's kind of a mix of conversational and colloquial with a highfalutin, you know, $6 word. Cerebrotonic Cato. Yeah, and, that, and that's kind of dated, frankly. Uh, it, it was... It's kind of like the body electric in Whitman, right, which refers right. to these bizarre phrenological theories of the 19th century that people took seriously at the time, and now you have to have a footnote explaining what it was. So cerebrotonic uh, Cato, there was this theory in the 40s and 50s that everyone's personality was uh, coordinated with their body type. And the so-called ectomorphs, the skinny people were cerebrotonic, they were cerebral, they were smart. And then you had the uh, mesomorphs, right. who were sort of thick-set and kind of dumb. Uh, and so cerebrotonic Cato may extol the ancient disciplines, but the muscle-bound marines, mutiny for food and pay. Well, the muscle-bound marines are mesomorphs, as any, right. <laughs> any right. uh, intellectual in the 19th, uh, 1950s would, uh, would see. Uh, but what I like about this poem is that it, uh, combines the idea of two cycles. One, one is a historical cycle where different civilizations reach the same stage in different eras, and here he's it's, it's post-war America and, and post-war Western Europe uh, comparing it to a late stage of the Roman Empire. So there's this cycle in uh, human civilization uh, and then outside of it there are the natural cycles of uh, the ecosystem uh, which are, are perennial, uh, and and he has two ex examples of that. There's the, there's the final one. Altogether, elsewhere, vast herds of reindeer move across miles and miles. That's very far from Rome or America, and uh, completely indifferent. Uh, to me, the, the interesting stanza is the one uh, unendowed with wealth or pity. Little birds with scarlet legs sitting on their speckled eggs, I each flu-infected city. That's where nature and civilization intersect. And it's, it's ambiguous. It's not clear. Uh, are, are these uh, birds carriers of the mm. infection? Are mm. they plague carriers with the flu-infected city? Mm. Or are they just like the reindeer? They're just part of this external nature. Why unendowed with wealth if they're... And unendowed with pity speaks to the sort of implacable quality of nature. But why? Well, there I think he's just being Auden. Sometimes he just throws in words. Mm. And there's this kind of sprezzatura, improvisatory mm -hmm. quality to it, where if you overanalyze it, it's just, it's a word. Right. He kind of throws in there, and often it's a plain word. Right. Uh, right. And, and that gives it you know, that, that uh, sort of colloquial right. uh, phrase. That plays Maybe. off the highfalutin yeah. words. And, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I, I, that's a, a very 
insightful, sensitive reading of it. And I think I, I grasped that. Um, I know that 51, was he bought in in America at that point? Oh, or yeah, he, was yeah, he'd been, he'd been, he, he was very roundly criticized for moving to the U.S., in I think nineteen thirty or thirty nine before. Oh, World was War. that early? Okay. Yeah, so he spent World War Two. So, so the, the, the famous, uh, uh, famous, his most famous stuff was written in America. Then I didn't realize it. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, uh, interesting. And and uh, he had actually married uh, uh, Thomas Mann's uh, daughter, uh, so that mm. she could legally immigrate out of mm. Nazi Germany and escape. Mm. Uh, although it was a mariage blanc, right. obviously, since he was homosexual. Right. Uh, so, yeah, the, the some people prefer the younger Auden, uh, but I, I think most of his famous work, it comes from his middle age and in his later years. I know he was very interested in Gibbon and uh, the decline and fall. He, was, he, he developed an interest, I found reading about this yesterday, in the idea that the fall of Rome led into this period of late antiquity and, and that it wasn't quite so uh, catastrophic and, and abrupt or so stark a division as uh, perhaps an earlier understanding suggested. Um, I, I hear in this a sense of uh, sort of feeling of, of decadence and of uh, morbidity. Well, 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 he had become... A born again Anglo Catholic, right? Point as well, right? Uh, and uh, and this actually comes from nuns. That was the the uh, it, w- it was you know, part of the Catholic liturgy. Mm. That was the title of the collection of of the uh, in which this poem appeared in nineteen fifty one. So yes, yeah, certainly he would see the Middle Ages, the med- medieval Christendom, as not necessarily being worse than what preceded it. I believe he thought that. Um Rome's fall was caused by its adoption of Christianity, not in the sense that pagan culture was more uh, vital than Christian culture, but that the imperialization. It, it, does that sound uh, well? I, from the as someone who's published poetry, yes, and also who publishes historical cyclical <laughs> ideas right, right. and politics, I, I think uh, for most poets, their their theories of history or metaphysics. Uh, are best viewed as a scaffolding, uh, you know, on which they can insert insights which you can agree with, even if you don't agree with their particular theory. Uh, so William uh, Butler Yeats's completely nuts theory of history, right. uh, in, my, in my view, produced some beautiful poetry. Right. And, and William Blake's, uh, I, I don't even understand his metaphysical system. Maybe a few scholars do. Uh, so, so. By their fruit, you shall know. The, you yeah, know, by, know them. Uh, uh, by by their fruit. Oh, you shall know the tree. Oh, yeah. no. I, that's the last line of an essay I wrote about Paul Gottfried. I used that. Uh, by their fruit, you shall know the tree that bears them. Something like that. Yeah. Um, uh, gospel reference, ultimately. Uh, yeah. Uh, that Leo Strauss had right. used, and then I used. Yeah. So, in social science, if you get your theory of history wrong, you're just wrong. Uh, but in poetry, you can have a completely wackadoodle theory of uh, history and write some uh, amazing poetry. But don't you need a cyclical theory of history for the scaffolding to work? If you have a linear view of history, it seems harder for it to provide a sort of uh, arbitrary scaffolding or a, 
It well, has what, to be right if it's linear. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and, that, and in that sense, there's always been this tension between progressive ideologies, whether it's liberalism or socialism, and art. Uh, because if you think that, you know, great art could speak to someone who is living in medieval Babylon and to somebody living 10,000 years from now, uh, that, that is kind of at a tension with the idea that everything in the past was bad and things are getting better and better and the uh, next stage of civilization will be so unrecognizably better that uh, older art will be hopelessly reactionary and contaminated uh, by archaic values. And, and you know, you, this is one of the, the least attractive elements of woke culture uh, that uh, if you're constantly becoming more enlightened every few years than anything written in 2014, maybe it was past its sell-by date, and it's just too contaminated by the, uh, the parochial and reactionary views of, of a few years ago. The hopeful note that we can extract from that to end on, though, is that as long as human beings continue to be fallible and err, uh, we'll still have good art. So, well, you also have politics, and I think this yeah. is a good thing that right. is every generation uh, will have to fight for a justice and, and for reform against other members of their own generation. It's, it's You have to start all over again. Things are constantly falling apart. You have to constantly rebuild them. And uh, it's not that one generation will fix everything, uh, and then everyone will just enjoy things, you know, until the end of history. Uh, you have to fight your own battles. Uh, may you fight well. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Pleasure to have you. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs>